Welcome to another episode of the Arcananth podcast. I'm your host, Michael, and this is a podcast all about human behavior, human evolution, uh, sometimes archaeological excavation, laboratory science, um, and how we understand the humans of the past. Today, I'm very happy to introduce to you Ella Bodwin. Ella, are you there? Hi, I'm there. How are you? I'm doing very well. How are you? Absolutely fabulous. Uh, working from home today, have a cup of tea. Ready to chat. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds perfect. Where are you calling in from today, Ella? Yeah, so I'm in Washington, D.C. So it's a very gray autumn day, but I am a contractor at the Smithsonian's Natural History Museum. Mm -hmm. um, it's more specifically in the Human Origins Department. That's amazing. Um, yeah. You know, we, we first met in, in the U.K. Mm -hmm. where you were visiting Cambridge where, where I was doing my Ph.D. for a short while. Mm -hmm. And... I think it was only last year. I think so, yeah. Or very, very close, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How have you been since then? And, and, you know, what have you been up to? Yeah, no, um, it's been really great. Uh, I, so kind of a little bit about like me and my specific, yeah, background, I guess, is like I've done um, paleoanthropology um, for a while now, more specifically um, paleo, uh, ar paleolithic archaeology. So looking at um, early human stone tool use. Mm. Um, but kind of, I was visiting Cambridge because I'm realizing, especially through the job that I have now, that a lot of the work that I'm doing, I love. I love rocks, but kind of want to do stuff with people. And so I kind of was visiting Cambridge and looking at all um, the cool different programs um, that you guys do and people that you talk to. And you were wonderful to me. So that was awesome. <laughs> um, but now I'm kind of... So I'm working on a grant to teach... Evolution in Alabama uh, in culturally sensitive ways, which is called the Luda Project. It's been a grant that's been going on for about uh, five years total. This is kind of its last implementation year, and I've been a part of it for the last three. Mm -hmm. um, so that's primarily what we've been working on uh, at work. Um, and then doing some field work up in Kubifora, which is a part of northern Kenya, um, doing some more ethnographic field work, which has been really interesting. Mm. Uh, and ethnographic basically is just. And, you know, walking around, or at least what it, what it means for me was walking around to living people and into their homes and asking them a lot of questions about the objects that they use every single day. Interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so when you're working, uh, so let's start with the project on um, uh, education in, in Alabama. Yeah, of course. So, you know, um, I, I suspect that with a big project like that, it takes five years and you've been working on it for, for three years. Um, how was the project, you know, divided up into different like phases and, and where do you come in? Honestly, great question. So the project, uh, yeah, it's called Learning, Unity and Diversity in Alabama. And my boss, Dr. Brianna Pobiner, kind of, and a bunch of kind of stakeholding people in Alabama, um, we're realizing that there, there's a need for evolution education. Um, specifically in southern uh, U.S. states or in more just kind of religiously conservative states often. Uh, in the U.S., evolution is still kind of a contested topic mm -hmm. in, in, in general, you know, not necessarily because of its mechanisms, right? Because especially in rural areas, people know what evolution is. Evolution is part of our lives in, you know, from growing crops to having dogs, right? Like it's something mm -hmm. that we all interact with. But the understanding kind of the long, deep time process of evolution that it took millions of years um, is something that can be really stressful to a lot of different communities, especially if their religious faith mm -hmm. uh, 
specifically contradicts that. And so in Alabama, it's actually uh, has quite a low belief in evolution. And it's also the only state left uh, in the United States that has a sticker on the textbooks that say uh, evolution is just a theory. Mm -hmm. And recently, within the last five years, the standards for Alabama high schoolers changed. And it was like the first time they explicitly said evolution must be taught in high schools. Um, And this is for high school students that are to possibly, you know, to graduate high school and potentially go on to college or go on to do, you have to kind of have certain parts of the curriculum mm-hmm. um, that must be taught. And so it recently just changed. And so what Brianna and the rest of the team kind of saw with this change in Alabama high schools was there's all of a sudden this need for a curriculum where before this hadn't been required and there wasn't a lot of content out there for teachers to to access and have have at their fingertips to teach their um, to teach their classrooms and for a lot of different Alabama teachers, some of these teachers might not have been taught evolution themselves in high school, right? Mm-hmm. So it was kind of this cool opportunity to use the Smithsonian as this apolitical organization that is just for like here we are, we're here for science. It has this kind of reputation for being non-biased, you know, not biased. Um, let's use our name to create this curriculum that can be beneficial for teachers and for students that can also allow students to kind of come to the learning of evolution without needing to feel that there is a conflict between their personal faith mm-hmm. and what they're learning in school. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of like the, the birth of the project. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they worked for several years, kind of once they were like, okay, we figured it out. We can use the Smithsonian. They worked for several years to create different curriculum sets. So this is actually piggybacking off of a different project with AP students, mm-hmm. um, which is called, which was a project to kind of use human examples to explain evolution, you know, cause there's so much that we can say with saying, okay, look at this frog. If we put this frog in this environment, it will change over time because of the environment, right? That's, that's interesting. Right. But we can say, look at this human, look at our, you know, adaption to altitude over time. We can use examples like skin color. We can use examples like malarial resistance um, to really explain the mechanisms of, of evolution. And that also hits a little bit, at least for me, I know, I didn't understand evolution until I got to college and I was, and someone taught me using human examples. And I was like, Oh, get it now. I get these concepts mm-hmm. in a way that I never did before because mm-hmm. I can relate to them. Yeah. So that kind of, you know, monologue ended, but <laughs> that kind of, that was kind of the second step was create two different curriculums, one using human examples, one using um, animal examples, and then also kind of create a, introductory class that can be put at the beginning of every evolution unit to talk about, okay, can we talk about your religion mm-hmm. in the classroom? Mm-hmm. Like, let's talk about it. Let's, let's let people verbalize their faith. Cause there's been a lot of studies that show that if someone's allowed to verbalize their faith, um, they're able to then kind of come to learning about something that might, they feel um, might contradict it a little bit more openly because right. they've kind of signaled to the world I am a person of faith. Um, I just need that to be out there. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of how it came. And then I came on as project manager. So we have a bunch of teachers from Alabama high schools um, 
who apply to be part of the project and we give them the, the curriculum, the resources. And then we also have basically all their students fill out a bunch of surveys saying like, is this working? Mm-hmm. Uh, and really great so far, our pre- preliminary results, that it is working. Really religious students are religious throughout. They don't ever change their religious faith, but their understanding of evolution is changing. Mm-hmm. Um, they're understanding it more without mm-hmm. changing their religious faith, with it, which is exactly what we wanted. Cool. So, yeah. You know, w- when you talk about this, I actually am reminded of uh, my own anthropological like education. When I was an undergraduate, I remember taking social anthropology classes. And, you know, one of the classes I took was anthropology of religion. And as part of it, the lecturers would teach me all about different faiths around the world. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. something that they really teach you in anthropology is not to, is to try really hard not to have, um, you know, your own judgments and whatever uh, biases or prejudices that we might have inside us about people of different beliefs or different faiths, different cultures. Yeah. You know, why is it so important for kids in these classrooms uh, and especially uh, also for teachers who might not have had much exposure to evolutionary science? Why is it important for them to understand how evolution works? That's a great question. So... For it's kind of been shown through through multiple studies that I you know I wish I could name off the top of my head, but I'm sure my boss could. But um, it's been shown that a better understanding of the mechanisms of of evolution, because it is this foundational part of all of biology, right? That it actually really helps students far past high school. Like it helps them in all aspects of science if they understand those concepts. Mm -hmm. So it's really about setting up these students to be at the same kind of to have the same resources as as other students around the U.S. um, and to be able to access these things that I think a lot of students take for granted. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's it's more about how in the future it just ends up impacting a lot of different aspects of their lives because science ends up becoming a different lot, a lot of different aspects in everyone's life, Mm -hmm. whether someone goes to college or whether someone, you know, whether someone doesn't, it just helps us understand the world around us. And I think a little bit more of a nuanced way, Mm -hmm. but I think like your point is really, really important. I think because so I, a fun fact is I'm the only person not of faith on the grant. So I'm the only person that is, you know, I'm, I don't know what I am or what I believe exactly, but everyone else is, is generally um, some form of Christian Unitarian or, you know, evangelical or Protestant or whatever, mm-hmm. and, uh, or Jewish. And so that's like every single person part of this grant has a religious background. And so for me, it was really interesting because I think we, you know, we go into anthropology classes and we learn about how we have to respect everyone's religion and everyone's culture. And, and we sometimes forget to bring those messages home mm-hmm. um, to our own communities. And I think I didn't realize until this grant how much I didn't understand about the beauty that faith can bring to people's lives. Mm-hmm as well as pain, but also, you know, for, for in different contexts, but it was, it's been really an education for me, especially also as just an anthropologist to learn much more about Christianity, uh, in, in the South and Christianity within people's lives and how it can affect and interact with everything. And, and Mm -hmm. it's been a really cool journey. 
um, especially for someone who never, I never grew up with the Bible. So I learned very quickly that a lot of stories I thought were Bible stories were not. They were Greek mythology that I had just thought was the Bible. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Which a lot of my, you know, like my Christian friends then laughed for truly 20 minutes at me for it, which I, which I appreciate. I'm getting a lot more pop culture references now Mm -hmm. that I, I'm a little bit more aware of what's, what's in that, what's in there. Um, (laughs) but I, yeah, I just, I think I didn't realize until this grant how I hadn't been looking at Christianity with, I think the openness and the kindness I've looked at other places and other religions, Mm -hmm. um, which I think was really, it was an interesting thing for me to learn on a personal mm-hmm. level. Yeah. Um, and, and so when you're working on this grant, uh, what is a typical mm-hmm. day in the life of Ella? Oh, typical day in the life of Ella. Mm-hmm. Um, depends on the type of year. Right now it's kind of a, it's pretty chill, which is really nice. Um, but once the teachers start teaching the curriculum, it kind of gets a little hectic. We have a meeting um, in Alabama. So I go to Alabama about twice a year. Um, so we have a meeting in Alabama where we gather the teachers and we show them the curriculum and we kind of teach them how to use this specific curriculum. So we have all of these, like, we have pipe cleaners that you make phylogenetic trees out of. And so we do, you know, we, we sit down as a group and we, we, you know, the people who develop the curriculum specifically show them how to do it. Most of the, my job is around logistics. So I do a lot of like, send me your W9 so that I can get it into the Smithsonian so we can give you a, a stipend, right? Because right. that's, we also, you know, we pay these teachers for their time and we try to provide all of the materials, um, materials for them. Because could you imagine going to a public school teacher and asking them to pay for anything? Mm-hmm. Absolutely not. They work so hard. They're truly superheroes and I don't understand how they do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of it is like me also printing and laminating and cutting things out and getting packets together for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of the the beginning of the year. And then the second part of the year, I go down with a wonderful researcher named Dr. Connie Burka. Mm-hmm. And she developed the cultural resource sensitivity training, which is in the beginning, or the CRS, which is in the beginning of... Uh, of uh, the what you teach in the classroom, which is the part where you can say, okay, let's look at all these different statements from different faith leaders and let's talk about conflict, uh, separation or interaction when it comes to evolution and religion. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are basically just all these different ways of viewing religion and evolution, how, how they interact. Then um, she's the one who developed it. So we then fly back down to Alabama and meet with some of the students who've taken the classes and ask them, you know, one, is it working or do you like it? But also, you know, is the CRS making sense to you? Did it help you feel more comfortable talking about this thing right. in front of your classmates? Um, so it's been, it's been cool going to, you know, back into high school, mm-hmm. long time no see. Um, kids are so much more cool nowadays, I feel like. <laughs> Everyone's better dressed. Right. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, when you, when you meet these kids, do you, do you, um, you know, have a positive response? Like, how, how do they find it? Yeah, so far, yes. Which is kind of, you know, I just, I, like, I don't know. Like, I just remember, like, you know, I think back to my high school experience and like, well, I was a really chipper high schooler because, you know, I'm insufferable. 
all, you know, I just remember all these kids who wouldn't in my, in my school who wouldn't have cared, but all of these kids were super passionate, were really excited about the curriculum. Mm -hmm. And were really like, I really enjoyed this. And we're also really excited to give us feedback, Mm -hmm. which was really cool. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was interesting too, to, to, to also hear their fears and concerns because for a lot of different individuals, when it comes to, you know, evolution, right, is that for some people, they've interacted with this concept their whole lives. And the thought is, am I going to have to give up something that is my community, that is my faith, that is my, you know, relationship to my parents, relationship to my pastor, relationship to my friends. To the world around them as well. Exactly. Yeah. To the world around them. Do I have to give that up in order to learn this thing in school? And 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 you know of course like if that was what I thought was the like the give or take I know I would pick my my world my family way before I would pick evolution right. so it's interesting to hear them be like you know one of the concerns I like they were like I'm just worried that or something I'm scared of or what I was scared of is that I you know I've been lied to my whole life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and I think what was really cool about this this program is that it's really trying to assuage those fears. It's not saying that you've been lied to. It's not saying that you're wrong. It's saying that there are so many different ways to look at it and you get to pick which way you want to interact with this. We're just going to teach you the stuff, but you get to pick how you move forward in life interacting with the concept of evolution. Mm-hmm. I know that you've conducted some field work in uh, Northern Kenya, especially. Yeah. I'm wondering, like, do you bring your own uh, stories of, you know, your own paleolithic research to your <laughs> you know, programs and what you speak to the kids about? Yeah, I think not with this grant, um, just because it's a lot more about kind of just observing, listening, observing, hearing their thoughts. Um, But I do a lot of outreach with the museum, um, kind of anytime they need an extra body um, to talk about stone tools or something or whatever, then I'll I'll talk about that kind of, which has been really fun. We do the program, there's a program called Teen Night Out that they've done for the last couple of years where it's all these, you basically, if you're a teen, you can come in DC or in your DC, you can come to the museum at at night and there's like a DJ and pizza and uh, a bunch of different researchers that are just kind of hanging out and you can talk to us. and touch some artifacts and things like that. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of where I've started talking more to students about, you know, the you know, stories of almost getting run over by a buffalo and <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, and having dirt in my mouth all the time. Right. Uh and that's been really cool to talk to because like I think they there's a lot of the public and especially young people don't kind of realize that there are that there are a lot of scientists that they can have open access to, mm-hmm. um, and also like you know like they're in high school and you know I'm 25 so I'm not that old I still remember high school you know what I mean and it was it's kind of fun to say like look I'm you know I'm only a couple of, like I'm only a little bit out of college you're applying for college like you're gonna be fine and you can get to whatever level you feel like the need to. This isn't an unattainable goal. I'm here. Yeah. I don't know how, but I'm here. <laughs> you know, like you can also be here, which is like being a really fun experience to like mm-hmm. chat with young people about 
oh no, this is super attainable. You can do this. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So I know like generally speaking, I mean, just like me, I, I know that you're interested in all of the six or seven million year long story of human evolution, right? Oh, yes. Yeah. So there's so much we can talk about. Um, but, you know, would you, you know, I'm going to poke this a little bit. Like, would you say that there is a geographical place around the world, a certain chunk of time in human history that you're probably, you know, that you know the most about and are most familiar with? Most familiar with? Mm-hmm. I think, uh, I think early, so probably, so the old one and the Shulian, I'm most familiar with shapes. And so that is the old one is kind of our earliest, arguably, um, our earliest first stone tools where there are these kind of, if you want to picture it, it's like a little tiny boulder that you can fit in your hand with mm-hmm. pieces broken off of it mm-hmm. in a in a systematic way. But that's kind of what we had early on. And then moving into the Acheulean, uh, it's basically these stone tools that kind of, or it's it's characterized by stone tools that are called hand axes mm-hmm. that look like teardrop, these beautiful little teardrop shaped things that kind of can fit in your hand, but are probably a little bit bigger than a cell phone. Yeah. Um, if we're thinking about size wise. And those are kind of like the tool forms I'm most familiar with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and region wise, I would say East Africa probably is where I, I feel most comfortable and specifically mm-hmm. Northern Kenya. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when was the last time you were uh, out in the field? Yeah. Yeah. So I was out there this summer. Um, so I do, I work with a team that's called the Kubifora Field School or Kubifora Training Project, uh, which is a field school taught in Northern Kenya with students from all over the world. Mm-hmm. I think, I can't remember how many countries were represented this year, but it was a whole bunch. Mm. It was awesome. And a lot of African nations as well. So that's really, I think, a very important part of our field school as well. Mm-hmm. That it was all different students from all over come and they basically learn how to do archaeology, paleoanthropology in the setting, you know, in the Rift Valley. Um, but they also get to kind of have their own autonomy in a way there aren't that I think other field schools don't necessarily have where it's you're paired with a mentor and you work on a specific project mm. that you then can present at conferences later on, especially if we get good data. Cool. Um, yeah, which is really fun. So I was up there this year working actually on modern stuff, looking at, at vegetation of abandoned homesteads and mm-hmm. kind of trying to understand landscape use in a modern in a modern context. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I was up there this summer. It was wonderful. It's the most beautiful place on earth by far. But I'm, I'm a sucker for deserts. So. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, what would you say is like your, your, your favorite uh, find or, or something that, you know, you, you were able to discover or, you know, observe, I guess, that, that you love to tell other people about? Oof, that's such a good question. And it's so difficult. <laughs> I think, <laughs> um, I think honestly, I think okay. I think I have two answers. I'm okay. gonna be. I'm gonna be. I'm gonna be kind of uh, silly about one and more serious about the other. And I think the silly one is more to is the first time really digging and feeling like I knew what I was doing. And it was more the idea that I'm uncovering a landscape, like I'm uncovering a spot of occupation from. Two, you know, two million years ago, hmm. and it's a spot where people are interacting, and all of these things that we're finding, we're excavating, are coming together to tell part of this human story. And I think 
for me, it was this idea that I was kind of a little piece of that was really wonderful. Um, uh, so that doesn't really count as like my favorite object, but <laughs> definitely my favorite like uncovering. And mm-hmm. I think my favorite object uh, was this summer. I started um, interacting a lot more with the community that live up near where we excavate. It's a town called Illoret, um, mm. and there's a community of people who live there. And um, I was doing kind of household surveys of different objects because we were going to abandoned homes um, where the home style is a little bit different. Um, there's kind of like a, we call them bomas. It's like a circular fence um, where then people have kind of more their um, pastoralist community or mm-hmm. semi-nomadic pastoralist community. So they will often, you know, live in a space for, for a certain amount of time and then will move um, and leave behind the traces of the bomas or the homesteads uh, where they were living. And so we were finding objects in there that we were like, oh, this is interesting. We're finding this object. But because we don't know their culture, you know, really well, we don't necessarily know what this object was used for. And so I was walking around and basically asking and asking if I could come into someone's house and just ask them about some of the objects that they owned mm-hmm. um, and do about an hour interview with them, um, which was really cool because there was, you know, there were objects like there's a piece of tin that was like from a can it had a bunch of holes in it. It looks like a cheese grater. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, being idiots, we're like, I don't know what this is. It looks like a cheese grater. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's not a cheese grater, you know, and then like going to someone's house and they were like, oh yeah, we, use, you know, I use that. I can make it and it smooths wood. So I can smooth the wood for like the chair I'm making. Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it was really cool for us and, you know, to kind of, you know, get a little bit of that ignorance out. But uh, I went into someone's house and there's a specific ceremony within their culture and with, um, that they wear leopard skin. Mm-hmm. Um, and this man, uh, it was, he was a young man who was collecting kind of all the stuff he needed for this pr- particular ceremony. He brought down this leopard skin and showed it to me and it was beautiful. And it's this antique that he had gone to Ethiopia and um, with an, another member of the same kind of community, the same community, um, and had traded, had bought it for cow and chatting mm. with them about the reuse of these objects that are, you know, like this leopard skin that's in, you know, it's an animal that's endangered, but it, it was really cool because they're not, you know, they're not going out and destroying a landscape. They're still retaining elements of their culture, but in ways that are sustainable, which was really cool. And it was, you know, I've never touched a leopard and I got to touch a leopard, yeah. <laughs> which was amazing, <laughs> you know? And like he was saying how after the ceremony's over, he can either sell it or he can rent it out to people in the community when they need it. Mm-hmm. So it was this way to kind of have this communal, this communal object of important significance. Mm-hmm. Um, but just, yeah, in a really sustainable way. And I think that was probably my favorite thing that I learned about, um, I don't know. I like to view archaeology as me just learning a lot of new things. Like, you know, other, other people know what this is, but I get to wander around and learn new things mm-hmm. every day. I find it so yeah. interesting that you, um, you know, you're also talking to them for about an hour. Um, yeah, yeah. Because I, I do this podcast. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, yeah. What would you say is like the most, um, you know, challenging part about like going into the field? I actually do have an answer to this. Being kind. Mm. Because 
I think when you are at least in this specific in like the coup before, like in a, in a field school where you're, you know, it's seven weeks, there's no phone, there's no internet. Um, you're camping the whole time and you're with the same group of people for seven weeks. Mm-hmm. It Tensions can get high, yeah. you know, because there's stuff like, I know I'm too loud all the time. Right. And it's fine when we're home and you can take a break from me being loud at you. Right. <laughs> but when you're, <laughs> but when you're in a group of people and like, I'm always loud and you can't escape that, that can grate on someone else's nerves. And I think, you know, that's the same for every person. Mm-hmm. Like no matter who you are, if you're with someone all the time, something can get kind of annoying. And so I think the hardest thing for me personally when in the field is to remember to be kind and remember to be like, okay, let's take a deep breath. Let's vote with our feet. Let's walk away, you know, instead of getting caught up in the frustration of being too hot or too dirty or mm-hmm. not able to call home, you know? And so I think that that's, at least for me, the hardest thing of being in the field is just mm-hmm. to remember to be kind and to try actively to be kind mm-hmm. all the time. Because you and the team are not, um, you know, you're not acting under like your normal circumstances. You're in a, exactly. in a higher pressure environment and, you know, things can get just kind of frustrating and you miss home sometimes <laughs> and all of that will like bubble exactly, up. Exactly. Yeah. And I feel like it doesn't matter. You know, this is my, I can't remember how many times I, I did the math. I did the, did the math. I counted um, recently. And I think it's my fourth time to the field school this year and sixth time to Africa as a, as a continent. So mm-hmm. I've, I've also been in, in Tanzania and South Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, no, sorry. Seventh. Anyway, even though I've gone a bunch of times at this point, it is amazing how much you miss home and that's so normal and, and acceptable. And I think mm-hmm. sometimes we think, Oh, you have to go out and be strong and you have to be the, the experienced one. It's like, you know what? Sometimes I read the letter my little brother gave me mm-hmm. a couple of years ago that I bring with me and I just get all teary eyed, right. you know, and like need a minute in my tent. Mm-hmm. What about like uh, working at the museum or uh, maybe working on this grant uh, on the, you know, education in Alabama? Like, are there any other challenges that you face in your job? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's always about, how, yeah, how do you, I think, how do you talk to the public or how do you interact with, it, it, there's a combination. I think there's how, because they're often, or there are sometimes frustrations, like I'm a young um female scientist. And so sometimes there are interactions with people that are not great and, you know, with the public that are not great. Um, for example, like old men being like, Oh, I, you know, talking to me, talking at me for a while when I'm mm-hmm. doing kind of an outreach event and then pointing to the poster of the person, you know, that says like the scientist is in being like, okay, when's the scientist going to get here? And you're like, uh-huh. I'm here. I've been talking to you for an hour. I hate this. Right. Um, and how to kind of deal with doing that diplomatically or, but also combating some, some really ingrained and often problematic questions about early human evolution. Yeah. And that's really hard, I think, especially when those questions might be really sexist in their, in their origin. Mm-hmm. And especially if like you are a young woman, you're like, this is so frustrating because this, 
idea about evolution is perpetuating sexism or racism or transphobia mm-hmm. in a really bad way. But how do you talk to someone who's honestly just trying to ask a question, who's curious and chain and kind of make them understand the science a little bit more mm-hmm. uh, so that they can hopefully take that change with them and that understanding with them to other people who don't understand, uh, who don't get it. Mm-hmm. I feel like mm-hmm. that's kind of the hardest. I think that's the hardest part. The rest is wonderful, but I think that's the, <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the most difficult part for me. Mm-hmm. So um, just today, actually, yeah. I got a, a message from someone on one of the social media channels of the podcast. Yeah. And, um, it, you know, what you just said reminded me about it. And um, I'm going to read it out. <laughs> and Please do. I'm fascinated. I would love your help in um, Great. figuring out like what to think about this. Okay. So okay. Um, the comment, the comment's quite long, but the comment is I've listened to the first 15 or so episodes of this podcast and I enjoyed the archaeological content and expert interviews. But identity politics seem to come up in almost each episode as well. And I like science, but identity politics is not a science. So I grew a bit tired of that and eventually stopped listening to it. Maybe I'll pick it up again and give it another go sometime, hoping to find that any focus on any people's identity will be based on falsifiable science rather than ideological narratives, since I, as a European, do like learning about different people's experiences around the world, but without these implicit value judgments or attachments to it based on real or imagined and past or present oppression. Ah. So a lot of, a lot to dissect there. A lot. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I, I, so yeah, in my podcast, uh, I interview people. I interview people from all backgrounds of all the different uh, jobs that you can do out there. Some of them have been students. Some of them have been professors. Some of them work in museums and in schools. And, you know, they, they come from all over the world. Uh, they are from Brazil and Mexico, South Africa. Uh, generally, I'm just asking them very similar questions to how I asked you. Yeah. So, you know, I, I ask you what you do in your day. I ask you, like, what are the challenges? And for many people, part of the challenge is because they're a woman or because they're queer or because they're a minority, they actually face some challenges in their day-to-day work, either with their colleagues or members of the public, their students, their bosses, you know, that happens. Uh, And it's almost like this person who's commented wants to, you know, would like it if, uh, if people did share their experiences, but cut out the parts where uh, people are being, you know, oppressed. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 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 Okay. Yeah. I think the first thing that comes to mind, or at least where I often will start with kind of comments, because I've had comments kind of like this before. Uh, what I like to point out, especially, or, or maybe not exactly like this, but when, especially when there are comments about um, like, why do we have to have diversity in science or like, why do you have to always talk about it? Mm-hmm. Um, what I like to point out is I can't remember, I saw it on Twitter, but I thought it was the funniest thing in the world and I loved it. But it was an example of one of the reasons why we need people to speak about their experience and why this thing called identity politics isn't politics. It's, it's looking at science, coming up with hypotheses and trying to understand the world around us in the past. 
there was, I think it was, it was a skeleton found in France. It was biologically male. The scientists or like the archaeologists determined and it had a ring on it that, um, had a French inscription. It was a ring that at that time period, wherever the skeleton was from, mm-hmm. symbolized uh, like love and attraction, basically like, I love you, you're my person kind of ring, like similar to a wedding ring. Um, and the and what the archaeologist in the paper wrote was like, oh, the person who engraved it must have been bad at French. And you were like, wait, why is that your assumption? And they were like, oh, because it's the male, it's a male him. It's not a, you know, it's not like I love her, it's I love him. And the skeleton was biologically male. Mm-hmm. And, and there we have to take a second to think about how our prejudices are, and, and this idea of not having identity politics, right, actually impacts the science that we do, right? Mm-hmm that if there had been a queer person anywhere near that excavation, one of the theories is cool. Yeah, maybe someone was bad at writing in French, Mm -hmm. but also maybe this was a gay person. You know, and and I think that sometimes we forget it, like, or at least sometimes there are people who like like to forget that without these very important experiences, that are verbalized and talked about, we do bad science. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I feel like that's one argument Mm -hmm. I always use with stuff like that. It's like, you know, I don't like identity politics. Well, someone studying gender in the past because we have a wrong idea about it because the sources we have are, you know, old men writing about this thing that Mm -hmm. completely ignored the science of it. Mm -hmm. You know, I feel like, I, I don't know. It's just, I think it's very interesting when people want, are saying that, you know, don't talk about that. It's like, but don't you want accurate Uh science? Then include people with diverse Mm -hmm. voices. Because I think uh, a lot of the established um, knowledge that we have has been established like in the last 100 to 150 years of like archaeology. Yeah. But um, a lot of the early archaeology and anthropology was tied in a lot with like colonial interests, patriarchal interests, you know, And, and so maybe the foundations of uh, a lot of our fields within our, you know, Anthonarch, they, they might not actually be accurate or there, there's yeah. like other elements that were missing because exactly. it, it was a certain group of people who looked at those questions to begin with and set the rules up. Exactly. And like there was recently, I think it was a paper in nature and granted this isn't humans, but I think it still shows a, a bias that there's a bias in in our museum collections skewed towards male specimens hmm. and how that's actively affecting the science that we do because we have more male specimens and and you know not female specimens of like bird species or you know I haven't not gonna lie haven't read the article but I did read a bunch of tweets that the journal or that the author wrote being angry at people responding to him being like, get identity politics out of this. And he was like, I'm, I'm not, I'm just saying that mm-hmm. like, this is an issue. So I, yeah. Uh, so you just mentioned, you know, that you had uh, not read the article, but you had read like a bunch of tweets. And yeah, I think that some Which probably uh, is. A, <laughs> I think a lot of people, a, problem in itself. Yeah, a lot of people do um, also do critique you know, things and talk about science. Um, I sometimes find that they are some of the most rigorous analyses of like yeah. recent discoveries. Um, 
And, and I think some people do undervalue like why social media or science Twitter is, can be like an important, um, you know, venue for discourse. Oh my God. It's amazing. I absolutely love Twitter. And I think a lot of that too, is because I have the privilege of being able to go to like a journal club at George Washington University. And there I sit and I listen to people who know more than me dissect a new article and talk about why it's right or why it's wrong or what's in the supplementary material and you know how this shows something. And that's really awesome that I get that privilege. But there's hardly, you know, if you're interested in science, there's not a lot of other places that you can go to listen to real experts critique and understand a topic except for Twitter. Like you can go to science Twitter and you can find these experts Mm -hmm. who, you know, look, like if you send me a DM, I'll do my best to answer a question. But that's kind of, I think, really cool place about it. Yeah. Is that like you, there's this space where people have access to scientists on a very personal level and, and critiques of new things that are happening right now which is so cool. Yeah. Um, I, I know that you share a lot of your work and like, you know, fun facts on your Instagram stories. Sometimes. <laughs> oh, yeah. um, where, where can people check these out? And, you know, do you want to share some details about um, the thinking that goes behind how you choose what to talk about each week? Yeah, of course. Um, so I have an Instagram called simple homo slapian um, slay as in you slay girl. Um <laughs> <laughs> with uh, underscores between each of the words. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and then I have a, in a Twitter that is just my name at, under, uh, at Ella underscore Bodwin. Um, but my, I really like my Instagram. It takes a lot more time than Twitter. <laughs> but um, I started on my, this is kind of my science one. I had, I had an Instagram that was like my personal Instagram. And I was posting a bunch of stuff from the field when I was working at a animal or game reserve. Um, and people really loved all of these pictures of different animals and chatting about... Um, like, oh, look at this baby hyena. Let's talk about some fun facts about hyenas. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I kind of wanted to start doing it more actively because I know for me, I'm very dyslexic. So like reading huge swaths of text has never been my thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted to try and think about how can I talk about a concept in a really visual way uh, that can be accessible to other people. Mm-hmm. And I found that uh, Instagram stories kind of lend itself to that, right? That you can create a really tight narrative in a couple of images with different text. Um, and so I started doing these tap through Instagram stories of like um, different different topics that I thought I could say at least something about. And a lot of them ended up being um, my friends would send me messages. Like one friend, I think my favorite story I did probably was about the hyoid bone and uh, the, if anyone knows uh, the Neanderthal documentary that recently came out, Mm -hmm. there's a section of it where a man um, screams one, (laughs) two, three in apparently a Neanderthal voice. And it's my favorite video on the internet because it's so funny. (laughs) Um, But I talked about like my personal opinion on why... um, reconstructing Neanderthal voice is from the evidence that we have is quite difficult. And, and, and why is it difficult? And I don't know. Um, 
but that was because a friend sent me a message. He was like, Hey, I watched this documentary. Can you tell me why this is right or why this is wrong? Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, you know what? I can try. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's kind of where a lot of my, like the questions I answer is people will just send me messages or I'll ask for questions. Um, and we'll do my best to make a little video mm-hmm. tap through of, uh, some yeah. fun facts. Um, and I know, uh, another question I was really curious to ask you is, uh, you, you know, you work at the Smithsonian and you, uh, w- w- you work with Brianna, who I also know, and you know, all of you because you have to um, kind of like give different kinds of talks to different audiences um, and to show kids different different aspects of human evolution, um, I guess that you have to be, I guess, up to date, kind of like on on like yeah. the story <laughs> so far that yeah. we, that we know from science. And especially now that I do this podcast as well, it kind of like uh, when I prepare for this show, I you know, I do research on all of the guests before I, I get on the microphone. And I, I also don't want uh, whatever I'm going to ask them about to be like outdated. And I'm wondering, like, how do you uh, stay, you know, updated? And how do you make sure that your your knowledge is like fresh? And, you know, is this is the latest science that's coming out? Honestly, that's a great question. I think a lot of it is just, yeah, trying to read the great thing about being kind of also surrounded by people also like in your discipline is that, you know, someone's going to be like, Oh, did you read that paper? And you're like, no, I Mm -hmm. did not one second, you know? Um, (laughs) so it is not, or, or kind of finding out about like, you know, something's about to be published and generally somehow one of my colleagues is on it or had something to do with it or were at, was asked about it. So it is quite nice to Mm -hmm. feel a little bit in the loop the museum or itself or the the exhibit itself was really smartly designed. So it turns 10 this year, actually it's 10 years old. Um, Mm -hmm. And it was really smartly designed because a lot of the, like the dating on specific objects um, won't necessarily, you know, like will change, but a lot of, they say like, by this time we have active use of stone tools. Yeah. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Or, you know, so, and, and that was really done so that we could have a longevity to this exhibit because I think unlike a lot of, I mean, obviously, you know, there's differences in like physics and stuff, but like our exhibit is very different from say like the ocean hall, which is amazing. But once you discover a new fish, you don't necessarily have to be like, oh my God, 12 new fish of the same species are found 12,000 years ago in a different spot. And like, I have to change this whole thing. And so our exhibit is kind of, we have to keep making sure that we, you know, add things, especially once it's being fully confirmed by like society and uh, by the, uh, the scientific community. So like, I guess an example being, um, like Lomaqui isn't necessarily in our exhibit yet, but hopefully, you know, if we find a bunch more, oh, sorry, Lomaqui is argued to be the earliest stone tools ever and ever. Right. Point blank, period. Mm-hmm. Um, they're very interesting looking. They look real weird. It's a different kind of way way of making stone tools that is a little bit um, less refined than even the old one, which was what we talked mm-hmm. about before. This kind of the earliest forms of stone tool use that uh, needed some sort of thought to go into breaking them. Um, they're kind of like a really large um, yeah. rocks and like they're, they're quite heavy. 
is yes. the way that they look. And uh, there's like one little jagged edge, which like has been chipped away to create the sharp edge, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. And that's exactly Lomekwe. Mm-hmm. While Lomekwe is a really interesting discovery, it's one of those things where a lot more research has to be done before it probably gets ingrained in like our exhibit, right? Mm-hmm. That like it needs, you know, more sites hopefully will be found. They're looking more dating will be done. Um, cause it's one of those things where it's like, it can be really cool if you, especially with, with stone tools, I think it's different when you find this, like a completely different genetic hominin, like, mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to the Denisovans, like that's very different where you find one, it's completely genetically different. And you're like, oh my goodness, mm-hmm. with stone tools, it's a, a pattern of cult, it's a cultural behavior. So there's a lot more kind of spectrum to it. Mm-hmm. So that often means we need a lot more like instances of it occurring before mm-hmm. we can kind of say definitively, this is a thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like, yeah, adding new... Ugh. honestly, I've also been going through and updating everything since it's been 10 years and updating mm-hmm. all the dates. And it's a lot of, a lot of Googling, yeah, uh, a lot of Googling, a lot of finding articles. And I think that sometimes we're also as scientists expected to know stuff off the top of, top of our heads. Oh no, give me an hour <laughs> on the internet and I'll be fine. <laughs> but if you ask me a question, please, there's so much stuff to know. Um, so uh, something that I, I really loved uh, reading in the last two years uh, are these articles that you wrote with uh, with Brianna, your boss. Um, oh. <laughs> they are the top five or top six human evolution discoveries. Are you doing? Are you going to do one for 2019? Because I know that you. I am. You are. Okay. So I am. Yeah, I'm writing uh, that now. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, I've always found them really good because. Um, you know, it's like a good roundup of like some of the coolest science that there is like people, uh, you know, recovering, I don't know, human DNA from dirt. I mean, who, who would have thought that's possible? Right. Um, yeah. Out of dirt. <laughs> yeah. Or like, I truly, I read that article and my jaw dropped. Yeah. So. <laughs> that's, that's science fiction, but it's not, it's real science. Um, exactly. so, uh, can you give like a teaser? Like what might be on the 2019 Ooh. one? Can you give us one? I think, I can give you a teaser. I'm trying to think of which ones I'm trying. I, I picked. Okay, because um, or even it's cool. if you so part, I, even if you don't pick them, like little, they're going to be, you know, they're still cool. Some of the coolest things this year, definitely some of the coolest things this year. Okay, uh, these are definitely also like some of the coolest things that I thought. And we also will go through our Facebook. Mm-hmm. So we post a lot of on our Facebook page, the Human Origins Facebook page. We post a lot of like new articles and stuff that we're finding, and then. I went through and I went back and I kind of saw also like what were, what were the things that resonated the most with people. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'm kind of going more in depth into a lot of those. So um, actually, okay. So one of the coolest things I thought that came from this year that is not something I study, but I'm definitely super excited to read a ton about is there's a new fossil ape pelvis found. Mm. Um and it might indicate that bipedalism is older than we thought. Wow. Uh, and it was uh, found in Europe and is ancestor of African apes. Um, but the pelvis shows has a more flexible lower back than other apes. Mm-hmm. So it might have allowed for standing upright more often. Mm. Um, so just like this idea that, like the idea that like bipedalism is even older than we thought, <laughs> mm-hmm. like, what? <laughs> yeah, that's sorry. It's so exciting. It's so cool, and it's. I think also, I have no idea about fossil apes, so it's one of those things where I was like, "No way! Mm-hmm. What? 
how do we know this? Yeah, and it was a research team led by Carol Ward. Um, so I, and she's an amazing researcher. Uh, and so I'm super excited to, to learn about this pelvis and mm -hmm. hopefully write about it. <laughs> <laughs> Had you uh, always been interested in, you know, uh, biology or history, like even when you were a young child? I always was interested in human stories um, and a little bit more macar like and, and death. <laughs> right. Um, not necessarily biology. I think I, I kind of fell into human evolution in college was kind of when I started being like, oh, wait, this is like the ultimate human story, you know what I mean? Um, but I, I was obsessed with like, like I think every single kid, you know, Egyptology and, and like, uh, you know, and Greek mythology and these stories and these beautiful objects that were coming out of the ground. Um, but I kind of in college realized, or like, you know, later on also, I started reading, there's one of my favorite books uh, is written by Jim Dietz who's a, archaeolog an, uh, a North American archaeologist, and he wrote a book called In Small Things Forgotten. Hmm. And he basically tells these very intimate stories around these tiny objects, right? Around a pipe stem, around a, a glass, a piece of glass, around a bead. Mm -hmm. How can we understand these like moments in time that, that these objects relate to and 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 what humans because it was a human who made that it was a human who left it you know mm -hmm. um and i re i really got quite swept up in in the beauty of that mm -hmm. you know that there are these tiny moments that people are leaving behind um i don't know it just i really like it uh yeah and i think also to do another book quote but don't worry, it's not a fancy book quote. It's uh, Terry Pratchett is my favorite author mm -hmm. of all time. Mm -hmm. He's a, like a fantasy novelist. Uh, and in one of his books, Small Gods, he writes about how no one is really dead until their name is no longer spoken or until their memory is no longer there, like ripples in a pond, right? Mm -hmm. Like it can keep going through time as long as the people are still talking about it. And I really hate the idea of of those memories being lost completely and so i think that was what ended up also dragging dragging me towards archaeology right. as a whole as i just i don't want anyone to be forgotten because i think we're all pretty interesting <laughs> yeah and we're telling the stories of people who who can no longer like tell their own basically exactly yeah mm -hmm. exactly so um this has been great ella if people want to <laughs> ask you any questions or sort of follow your your work going forward can they find you somewhere online yeah for sure you can find me on my instagram which is uh simple underscore uh, homo underscore Slapian mm -hmm. or um, my Twitter at at Ella underscore Bodwin um, and DM me on either. I love answering questions or trying my best to answer questions. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. And if you want to see pictures of or video of baby hyenas chewing on a car, I got I got that on my Instagram. <laughs> so uh it's really what brings them in. <laughs> um yeah you you're you're an influencer. You know, that's what they think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. That's definitely who I am. <laughs> um, and before, uh, because, because you've listened to some episodes before, uh, you might know that I ask every guest for a hashtag that's unique to the episode. Ooh. Oh, goodness. <laughs> hashtag hard questions. Hard I don't questions. know, or something. 
hard questions or hashtag identity politics? Oh, no, 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 no. I don't, I don't want that one. <laughs> that's very fair. <laughs> Honestly, that's very fair. Uh, <laughs> I like hard questions. <laughs> hashtag hard questions. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, um, do you feel that there is anything we haven't covered already? Any closing messages for our audience? Honestly, no, this was, I was, thank you so much. I was, I was nervous and you made this very smooth. Oh, <laughs> well, you're, you're uh, a, a great communicator of like what we do. I, I'm always really impressed by what I see on social media. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, I feel like a okay. turtle. I'm going into my shell. <laughs> okay. So uh, let me see. So if you like this episode, listeners, then definitely let us know on Instagram, Twitter, on our Facebook page and our Reddit page as well at Arcanath Pod. If you want to find out more about Ella's work and uh, what she's doing, then be sure to find more information at Arcanath.com. More episodes will come out on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher and anywhere else you find podcasts. Thank you so much to the patrons of the show who keep the show going. If you also want to become a patron to support the show, then go to patreon.com slash Arcanath Pod. That's patreon.com slash Arcanath Pod. Thank you so much, Ella, for appearing on today's episode. Yeah, thank you. Listeners, I'll have another episode out for you soon. Goodbye. Bye.